I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. It's back. After a long hiatus and a lot going on in my life, I am bringing back the podcast. In order to do so, I brought my good friend and colleague and data privacy and cybersecurity person of interest, Dan Ayala, to interview me. So over the next few episodes, we'll discuss where I've been in the past 18 months, what I'm doing now, and where I think this industry is going, and why I plan to leave it within the next seven years. First episode, we'll be looking back at the last 18 months with a lot of trauma I've had to face and how I've had to build for mental resiliency. So please plug in, listen, and buckle up as Dan and I dig into the last 18 months. Hi, and welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. No, your ears aren't deceiving you. The voice you're hearing is not Douglas Brush. I'm Dan Ayala, and we're doing a special series of episodes of Cybersecurity Interviews in which I get to turn the tables and get to put Doug Brush in the interviewee's seat. Doug, welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. I know the founder of this show is very excited to have you here. Uh, he's, a, he's a talented individual. Uh, I thank him for all his contributions to the community, and I totally support all of his endeavors, and fully support all the stupid things he says and does that gets him into trouble. It's not his fault. I understand you've recently nominated the, uh, the founder of this podcast for a Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, there was a couple categories. I figured I'd spread it out for the oh. Nobel Prizes. There's there's physics, engineering. I mean, there was really everything because I think uh, I, I cover so much. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we're back here on your podcast. And, you know, the question I think that everybody is interested in is uh, it's been a while. You know, you took a year off the podcast. Uh, what's been happening in that time? And uh, you know, what's bringing you back now? Yeah, I, uh, I, I bought a boat and I sailed west to find the new world and open up spikes. No, wait, that wasn't me. That was in the 1500s in a prior, prior life. Now, unfortunately in the last year, uh, this will be today is a, exactly a week and a year away from when my mother passed away. Um, and in that time, since then I lost um, another kind of surrogate mother from kind of the extended family. Uh, Dolly Singh, who was um, with me since I was two years old. She was taking care of me in New York City when my parents started their communications consulting and PR consulting business, DJ Brush Associates. At this time, they were writing books and presenting all over the world on corporate communications. Um, you know, they had this foresaw, forethought to think that, you know, maybe someday, you know, there's going to be different methods for content creation, both internally and externally for communicating with employees and customers and each other. And there might be new ways to deliver this information, whether it be from satellite, internal TVs. And my dad had this crazy idea even in the 80s, like you know, these, these local area networks are going to come down and pricing and be more available and ubiquitous to, um, to the world and, and allow people to actually then do things like video and audio over these things to a much wider audience and 
I just hope one day he can he can actually see that vision. Unfortunately, he passed away and he never got a chance to see it. But I mean, joking aside, it's they're very much on the on the forefront of a lot of what we have now. And I was very fortunate. Um, but at that time, they were you know starting a business and they had to have young Dougie. And if you know Doug now, just imagine a two year old version and the amount of uh, care and support that's needed. So they had somebody kind of take care of me during the day and after school. And she was this. Guyanese woman, Dolly Singh, originally from India, and she had left in the 50s during their cultural and revolutionary and political upheavals, ended up in Africa, moving to South America and the Caribbean with other Singhs and other other folks um, from that area. And she's up here taking care of me, suddenly finds out her family, uh, her father, her father, I'm sorry, her husband, passed away, just drops dead of a heart attack in, in his 50s. And he was taking care of the boys, three boys and a girl. And some of the other, you know, cousins and brothers and sisters in that family. So she has to fly down um, and then takes him back. And ba they basically lived with us for, uh, you know, some time while she was getting all the funeral stuff. And then she came to the United States and we helped them get started. Gavin Singh, the eldest, was really the one that got me started with IT. He was the one that in the early 90s sat me down, showed me Novell Networking Operating System. And I know you might be one of the handful of people that still remember what that is. Bindery uh, till the very end. Uh, you know, because it's nothing better than when you're trying to get two computers to fight with and you have IPX, SPX, NetBuoy, and IP addressing to all collide with each other and then try to do host name resolution and all of that. Why I just didn't quit in the 90s at that point? Because as I was fighting with my DNS uh, settings today, I'm thinking I've been doing this for far too long. Um, but no, he, Gavin taught me a lot of this. And um after my mother passed away there there was kind of an extended family that were still supporting me unfortunately two months later uh dolly finally had been fighting pancreatic cancer um for years um much to the surprise of her doctor to how she was so resilient in getting through it she passed away then two months after that gavin dropped out of a heart attack so i lost three of the elders in my tribe and really people that I looked up as role models in both business and life uh, were gone. And during that time, I was also going through divorce and, you know, people say, well, is the, you know, was it contention? All divorces are contention. There, there's no fun divorce. Nobody's like, hey, you know, I was, I was really, can we do that again? Um, so it was, it was really challenging time. And when you have a young kid who's 12 going on 30 and she's very much like me and a wise ass and too smart for her own good, a lot of this was challenging. And so as I was going through a lot of that, it was just it was just really focusing on family and life and trying to get through the day to day. And then even at the same time, I was working a full time job with a company and doing well with that, traveling quite a bit. And also on the side on nights and weekends doing some some work with um, what I'm going into now is this special master and court appointed neutral work uh, that had come up and I've been kind of doing on the side for over a decade. Um, that really took some full time. So long story short, it's been kind of a crazy, crazy couple months, years, you know, 18 months of just trauma. And then even, you know, add in all the pandemic stuff. It's been uh, it's been a lot. So I've really been focused on dealing with that stuff. But finally at a point again where I can I can get back into doing things I love and community sport, podcasting and, and getting back out there. Well, it's great to have you back. And I know the community is excited to get to uh to get to get another season of uh, cybersecurity interviews underway, uh, you know the array of people you bring on is uh, is, is a wonderful uh, wonderful uh, subsection of the uh, uh, of the community. And, and information security is about secure is about community. So uh, glad to have you back. 
Um, so all of that said, you know, one of the, one of the themes I just heard through your, through your last year, uh, was one that really dealt a lot with, uh, with mental recovery, with self-health, with taking care of Doug. Um, this is, you know, obviously it was, a, it was a, there was a lot of tumult that showed up in the, in that last year, but there's also a lot of tumult that shows up in, in our careers. Uh, and later we'll talk about, you know, some of your current state in, you know, what you're working on, uh, and some of the things that lead up to that. But right now I just like to talk a little bit about, you know, how mental health plays into, um, general wellness, how it plays into your decision to walk to walk away from things for a little while, uh, and when you knew you were ready, and how you knew you were ready to come back. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's a great kind of story arc of that because, you know, there there's things that are out there such as uh, these these kind. If you go to stress.org, it has the uh, Holmes Ray stress inventory scale, and it, it really kind of sets some markers of, hey, you know, what's happened in the last year? What are these these stress things? And when you really look at it, some of them are quite normal in the sense, like you're going to have stress, you're going to have low levels of trauma, things are going to be disruptive. Um, what you try to avoid are a lot of acute incidents on top of each other, because as they stack up, inevitably, um, you you suffer some mental health physical health breakdowns. And so once you get to the the scoring points, so it's like 150 points or less, you have a relatively low amount of life change and low susceptibility to stress-induced health breakdown. As you get to 150, 300 points, about a 50% chance of health breakdown in the next two years if you continue at that level. 300 points or more, it's an 80% chance of a health breakdown in the next two years um, based on some of the statistical predictions and models on this. So it's really this idea of forecasting you know, where you are and where these things occur on a timeline and as you kind of plot them along when they come too closely you really spike your 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 stress levels and that creates a whole parasympathetic and sympathetic reactions affects your mental and physical health i was probably close to 800 when i took some of these i mean like off the charts at the points where it's just been insane when i add up all these things um in this case and- overachieving is not a good thing yeah, and that's like, you know, it's like getting getting high scores on that was uh yeah, nobody patted me on the back and gave me a, you know, a gold star for that. And but, you know, at that same time, you you survive. And there becomes a certain point where you need to move on from surviving and start living because you have to start processing some of this trauma and that really became the focus of, you know, okay, I'm going to get through this. Um I'm, I'm going to maintain a level to the extent I can of resiliency through this in the moment, plan for resiliency in the future. And, you know, incidentally enough on that, you know, kind of when we say the word resiliency, I've been a big focus of what I've been saying in cybersecurity is, look, the proverbial shit's going to hit the fan um, in your organization. And, and planning for it in ways that you adapt and overcome is a much better mindset for your governance and risk management planning than it is to, oh my God, we had something bad happen and we all freak out, you know? And so that's really become a a parallel to what I try to do in life is understanding these things are going to happen. They're going to continue to happen. And it's not the end of the world as as, as much as it feels it in the moment, um, but you have to keep going through. Now, on the other side of that, you know, as you go through this, it adds up. I mean, that that stress, that baggage, that's 300 to 600, 900 points, 
they had to be processed somewhere. And it really became a point of about middle of last summer as all these things were really accumulating. I had some work stresses um, that, that I was becoming frustrated with and I was probably acting out on those within the corporate culture in ways because they just became the easiest punching bags because you're close to them on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I really felt I was in an unhealthy space even though it wasn't so overt but I didn't want to get to that point where I was going to hit rock bottom and stuff. So I started kind of planning for that and saying, you know, I'm going to, as, as the end of the year comes around, November seems like an arbitrary date and all, but that's a, that's a good downtime. And that's really where I kind of targeted that was going to take off November and December. And I would say I went into that thinking, okay, great. I'll give myself two months. And I, I think I overly analyzed this plan of I'll be back on my feet. I'll know what I'm going to do in 60 days. And I really think that 60 days took me time to, um, slow down and start feeling things and really realized I was not ready. I was not ready, ready to kind of you know, re-enter society, so to speak. And it's really taken some extra time to really get to that point. So then I can look forward and I probably allowed myself another month or so and, and continue to, to see what I'm going to do and enter things kind of slowly and organize things because my cycle to date has been very much put out the fires, move on, get the high off of that. And I have this very upward trajectory coming out of a bottom. And I've talked about this in my mental health talks from 2017. It's hit a really bad, bad spot then too. And then, you know, within six months, I was in China, I was working with DJI, I was doing all this incident response, I was in the New York Times, like all these things built up. And I was just like, okay, cool, I'm fine. But I, I really wasn't, I didn't process these things. So it's allowing myself enough time to really get into the feelings of all these traumatic events that have happened and work through them and not just say, Hey, I'm fine. You know, it's, it's okay not to be okay at times and give yourself that space to heal. Because in the end of the day, I have a family, I have folks within this community. I have a lot of people that whether I like it or not, because that's not my choice necessarily depend on me in ways that I need to be the best version of myself. And what does that look like? And that to me is health and it's my mental health, my physical health and really getting things in a place where I take care of myself so I can take care of others. And so there's this weird selfishness that has to go along with it where you have to really say, I'm going to put myself first in a non-conditional kind of way where it's not like, you know, I want something out of it. It's in the sense that I'm going to do this because I know it's better for other people. And that's really been kind of a driving force. And with that, I've been able to get a lot of things under control and in a much better balance. And quite frankly, know that things are going to happen. And, you know, right now, as we record this, there's a severe economic downturn in the tech industry. And unfortunately, these are things I started preparing for a year ago. Like I knew these things were going to happen. I predict, I think we talked to you about a number of times that the way that the market was set up and where I think the industry is going, that I was like, all right, this is a perfect time to step back. So I, I really was more deliberate about making sure I had time, step back, process, get ready for the next wave of whatever things are going to happen, good and bad, but to really be in a much more prepared state without being burnt out about it. Well, there's no better time to leave your job than just ahead of an economic downturn. Um, so, so I, I want to, I want to go into something that you were talking about there and, and relay a question. Um, you and I had talked early on about the power and importance of, you know, of staring at trees, of taking the time to just stare at and look at the world around you. Uh, we live in a world, at least here in the United States, where if you're not working, there's the perception that if you're not working, actively working, working hard, overworking, that you are failing. How did you and how can people give themselves the grace, allow themselves the grace 
to take that necessary recovery time rather than just jumping from crisis to crisis or from high to high, um, work high, that is, uh, and, and let themselves actually get back to a recovery. I guess the subtext of this is how do we even let ourselves take, you know, more than just a Friday off as a vacation day, uh, and get to a model where we, you know, take two, three weeks off and actually decompress and recover. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I grew up in that culture, probably similar, you know, like I said, with my parents, you know, I had, my mother was the CEO and president of DJ Brush Associates. So she had to push hard and strong. I mean, South side of Chicago, Pollock, who's six, three, uh, blonde, beautiful, intimidating. I mean, she just had all, but she never used it as a, as a kludge, you know, she just commanded presence, but I know she had to work really hard to get through a lot of things, you know, coming from, you know, a second generation immigrant Polish family that she really had to prove herself. So it was ingrained on me to not take your foot off the pedal. That yeah. was, you know, you're going to, something bad's going to happen. Uh, I think my father was in the same way too, because he kept himself very busy, uh, maybe not productive, maybe not effective in certain things, but they were both very busy and people and we, there was no downtime or rest. So I grew up with a culture of that at home and it was certainly reflected in the business cultures that we grew up in the 80s and 90s. I mean, as I entered consulting, yeah, the expectation was you were going to bill 60, 70 hours a week. I mean, that's just what you do. And as I got into corporate America, even when I came in as a VP and director level, my, you know, my utilization and billable targets were still you know, 30, 40 hours a week, which means I had to still go out and do business generation. So I was still working 70, 80 hours a week. And there was always this expectation that, you know, come the end of the year, we get rewarded out of it financially. And it was like, you know, is that $1,000 bonus really worth, <laughs> worth it? And I think, you know, that all is, you know, there, but I think there's a huge shift and change in that. Part of it is, I think I was very fortunate to run my own teams and consulting practices, even within groups. Whereas I had new millennials come in that just basically said, we're not going to work the weekends or nights, but we need the work done. Cool. Figure it out. Hire more people. Not my fucking problem. Like we're, I'm going to deliver to you in the time that I can. Um, if you need to fill those, those times, you, you know, you need to work it out. And that really allowed me to refocus the way that I did my business planning and pro quite frankly, a lot of productization of cybersecurity services. So for example, things like a $10,000, um, security assessment. So we go into Voln scans, policy assessment, just this really kind of light touch across all boards to really say, okay, what's your posture? Um, and that came out of something that was a very long process and SOWs and we had to make sure we had billable hours on this and we were forecasting, screw this. Let's just do it at a fixed fee price. Well, what if we go over? I was like, well, then that's on us to figure out how to do it more efficiently. And we carved out a lot of things. And what I found was, is by setting the expectations and boundaries around it, I worked better on it. My staff worked better. We delivered faster. And I've kind of used that ever as a model. Say, okay, well, we don't have to burn people out. It's not about the hours. It's about the output. And as we started getting more results with doing less, that's really where became my focus on, on staffing and growing businesses. I think I did a much poorer job doing it to myself. You know, I was very good at encouraging that and seeing that. But Do as I say, myself. not as I do. Yeah, because again, it was so much ingrained in my DNA and I had very high uh, employee satisfaction, very low errors, things didn't have to get redone, higher um, customer satisfaction as well as part of this, um, higher 
retainment of customers, high retainment of talent, and like a 70, 80% add-on of additional work. So all the business metrics show if you do this right and you staff things right in consultancies, you can actually do more with less. It's not just about top line revenue. I drove better margins and it, by the byproduct of it was actually better top line gross. Um, but, you know, people were happier. And I was like, okay, wow, we, we were wrong for a long time about how we do consulting and doing loss and it's bullshit. And that had to stop. And, you know, I, I think it's, to me, I was able to reflect on that and say, okay, it's okay. Because I would send people home when I can see them burnt out. And I was like, like, yeah, we have to get this done. I was like, great, but you're going to work through this from 6 p.m. to 9, 10 p.m. on a Friday. Uh, hand it off to me over the weekend. I'm going to spend the entire weekend myself away from my family rewriting this because it's garbage. So we're just doubling the work. Put it down. We'll get back to it till Monday. You know, if I have to buy more times with the customer, I'll do that. That's my job as a manager to push back on the customer, not push down on my staff. And I really just started having to do that with myself. It really allowed myself the opportunity to say, okay, when am I going to be my best? How can I be my best? And really with that is, is downtime and recovery. It's not, you know, running at a full pace. Humans don't, are not, we don't run on batteries. You know, we have very cyclical, I mean, it's just, they call it circadian rhythm of, you know, when you have energy cycles, when you have downtime, when you need rest. And really following that, you get more productivity and it's just... For me, it's it's changing that mindset of, oh my God, I have to get this done now to I can get this done later because right now the priority is my health. So when I address this later, I'm my best at addressing it. So I'm not half-assing it at late at night. And it's it's really forcing myself. And I say, it's like, yes, I how do you treat it? It's it's really hard. It's hard for me to do that. But I have to constantly remind myself, like I have the I've proven it with my own numbers. I have to listen to I have to eat my own dog food. And it's hard at times. And it's really allowing myself the space, the time for recovery, and just accepting things are going to be okay, even in a two-month period of stepping back for things. I can come back to it. The world's not going to end. Because the other option is I take two months off proactively or six months off because of a health issue. All right. I mean, I was at I was at a, I was at, an, at a point where my blood pressure was 170 over one high 120s. And the doctors were like, we should just observe you in, in like a – a Truman show had the fact that you're you're not having a stroke or a heart attack in front of us is amazing like they were like baffled that I was like not having a major health crisis if you think about that like a stroke and I'm 46 years old you know for me to do that that that's still even as younger ages it was gonna recover but that's just a horrible situation that was, was a wake-up call too that I, I need to get this under control and since then I've gotten it you know way down and it's been much more encouraging but yeah it's like either you know Take some time now, or you're going to be forced to take the time later. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I'll, I'll relay one one of my favorite stories in this. The, the moment that I got it, as many twenty some years ago, almost twenty years ago now, <clears throat> and I worked for a uh, for a Dutch bank, and uh, I was lamenting uh, taking time away when I was on a trip over in, in the Netherlands, uh, and one of my colleagues based there looked at me and said, "Dan, you're not that important." You're not that important. You're not that important. And this is one of the things I loved about working for a Dutch company was you always knew where you stood. There was this, this level of transparency and honesty in communications uh, that that I you just don't find uh, in, in many other places in the world. Uh, but Dan, you're not that important. The company was here long before you. It'll be here long after you. Surely you don't think that your two weeks away will make the place fall apart. And it was just that eye-opening moment. And from then on, uh, you know, found ways to 
just make sure that I took time for me. Well, and I think a lot of it too is when you're in cybersecurity, even if you're doing the proactive and preventative work, there, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on it. You know, you get into the IR litigation response space, which I, I, I keep going back to. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, um, you know, even when I go in and I do CISO services, I was talking to a, a client that I'm bringing on the other day, and he's the CTO. I said, well, look, when you talk to the CEO next, heads up, he's going to think the sky is falling. He doesn't understand cybersecurity. And I'm, he, just, he, just, he thinks it's this kind of dark, scary thing. And that we're doing it all wrong. And when you come in and give your report, and I'm just doing a basic CSF assessment that it's gonna be bad and we're much worse shape. I go, the amount of times I hear that, like hundreds of times, I'm particularly, and this is the preventative side. I was like, it's never that bad. You know, mm -hmm. often when I go in, it's like, no, actually you have a lot of good things going on. And I think it's that framing. It's very easy to forget all the good things. You focus on these bad things and freak out. Um, and, you know, then on the flip side with the IR stuff and litigation response, same thing. It's, oh, my God, oh, my God, react, react, react. I think our jobs are to be level-headed, cool, calm, and collective and not so emotionally responsive. It's that stoicism of, look, I'm going to feel the emotions. I'm just not going to act on them. Logic must prevail. Facts must prevail. I have to make decisions based on what's in front of me now for the best in the future as well. And that level of cool calmness uh is often missing in our industry, you know, both on, on really all sides. Everybody's like, oh my God, we have to get this done. I mean, the amount of times when I was at Splunk, it was, I would talk to, you know, the CISO. I'll say, okay, what's, what's going on now? And it would be this, I'm exhausted because I'm, you know, we went from 10 years ago where nobody knew what the function of a CISO was. I still don't think most people do, but, you know, <laughs> it was just kind of this amorphous thing to where, you know, it's almost too much attention now where, oh my God, did you see this in the New York Times? What are we doing about this? Doesn't affect our business. Well, I need to report on my desk tomorrow because I got to bring in front of the board. And the CISOs are like, I'm just, I'm exhausted from this. We're so reactionary, even on like building a program. I'm like, now this is why nothing gets done. I'm constantly responding. It's like, it's again, it's great that the the board and the executives care now, but now it's like, that's a whole new level of incident response. You got to stop, drop and roll because somebody read something in the New York Times. And a whole level of mental health care in the roles to keep that balanced. Let's. Well, and that's the thing is, that it, I was going to say just on that is, that, you know, if you look at, and, and I've talked about some of the surveys of CISOs, you know, most of them are overworked, underappreciated, feel that there's going to be a breach. Most of the CEOs don't feel there's going to be a breach. However, they think if there was a major security incident, they'd lose their job. Most of them don't take off two weeks a year. Most of them, haven't had a two week break in, you know, I would say most like 70, 80% of them haven't had a two week break. Most have never had a month, you know, they just don't take the time. And we wonder why these folks are burning out and, and we still have these security incidents because we don't have strategy. It's jumping from one hyper reactive situation to another. That's not healthy for people. It's not healthy for business and you're burning people out. Thank you for joining us for the first part of the Return of the Cybersecurity Interviews podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. So stay tuned for next week's episode as we dig in a little deeper about my history and how I got into the industry. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.